Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. As you're opening your Bible to John chapter 3, there was a man and his friend out playing golf on a beautiful day, and one of the guys was getting ready to make his chip shot onto the green, and as he prepared to stroke the ball, having addressed the ball properly as you do in golf, he saw out of the corner of his eye a funeral processional making its way down the street on the side of the golf course, and so he paused for a moment, removed his hat, got on his knees, and began to pray. And his friend said, wow, this is one of the most thoughtful, touching things I have ever seen, that a man would stop in this golf swing and, and, and pray for someone in their funeral processional and to pray for the family. What, what thoughtfulness, so touching. Well, his buddy got up off his knees and he says, well, we were married for 35 years. It's the least I could do for her. Yeah. Sadly, that's what some of us do in our relationship with the Lord. We give a nod to him. boy, God. We acknowledge him, and that's about it. But you know, when we come to a text like John 3.16 and the verses that follow, we really discover that God's love is not a feeling. It is something that he put into action. It was costly, and he demonstrated that love for us, to us, so that we could see the extent of his love and how he wanted to deal with our sin. So in the season of Advent, we are reminded that it's a season of expectation and waiting, longing to see what is coming, to see who is coming and of course, we know on Christmas Eve, we'll light the fifth candle. This was, this was my excitement as a kid right here. There's four candles. That's one more until Christmas Day. So much more to me now than it did then. If you would stand with me as I read from John chapter 3, verse 16 through 21. John writes in his gospel, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works 
may be shown to be accomplished by God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in and through the name of Jesus, the only access that you have provided to your throne of grace. Father, we come so in confidence, yet humble, knowing that in Christ we have fellowship with you, and today we live for your glory. Thank you that life, eternal life instead of wrath, may be ours because you loved him and through him you love us. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, provide for us. And what we are not, make us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, you may have been around in 1966. I was not. But I Googled the article, and it really does exist, at least on the internet. In a Time Magazine article entitled, Is God Dead? It's a famous article. It's been cited numerous times. The author asked a number of people by interview how they pictured God. One of those responses said that God is a lot like how he was explained to us as children. He's an older man with a beard who is just and who can get angry at us. I know this isn't the true picture, but it's the only one I've got. That response is pretty common, especially if you've had someone or you're talking with someone who has grown up in any kind of religion, that God is the unhappy white-bearded father figure or, or grandfatherly figure who gets angry. But our text this morning says something altogether different, something That's not man's definition, but rather how God has displayed his love and how his love is a part of his nature. There's a reason in the Ten Commandments that God told us there and commanded us not to make an image or an idol in any shape or form, because when you do, that's what you worship. If what you worship is an angry old bearded man sitting on an his rocking chair on his eternal front porch always getting angry, you've got the wrong picture of who God is. He is not the unhappy, bearded old-timer who is always angry, rocking on that eternal front porch, yelling at the hooligans, you kids, get off of my lawn! Shaking his cane at them. Does he get angry? Yes, he does. Is he a God of wrath? The Bible says... Yes, he is. The Bible also says that he is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, John wrote to the church, we have come to know and to believe that uh, the love that God has for us, God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. There and in verse 4 of that very same chapter, John wrote that simple phrase, God is 
love. He defines love. A part of the nature of God, one of his attributes is that he is love. And what does that mean? Wayne Grudem, theologian, pastor, author, defined God's love this way, in that God eternally gives of himself to others. God eternally gives of himself to others. It's in his nature then to give of himself in order to bring about blessing and good for others. That's who God is. That's how he loves. Love is Love is present when you go back in the creation story, in the universe when he spoke everything into being out of nothing, when he put the sun and the stars and the moons in their place and he formed the dry land, when he created the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, there was love. When he breathed life into Adam's lungs and then put Adam to sleep because Adam was lonely and took a rib and formed Eve, And there you have love. Love was there in the garden as he dwelt with them. And love didn't stop when the world fell into sin and rebellion against God. It is there that we learn of God's discipline, which is a part of his nature to love us. Hebrews reminds us that when we are under the discipline of God, it is because he loves us not because he hates us. God pointed to us at that very moment when the world fell into sin, his desire to redeem us from that sin in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. So there in his love, being that he is love, we find a very, uh, very redeeming quality to his love. That which is lost, he is going to redeem. That's how much he loves. Along the journey, to this time of his arrival when he would come be with us in the Christ child and in the Son of God, God shepherded his people with care. He guided Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through lots of adventures, dangerous times. And though the time and again his people would turn away from him, he still loved them. Whether it was in triumph of taking Jericho or discipline and exile through the time of the judges, or through, through someone known as Rahab or, or Ruth, God loved his people. He loved his people all the way to the point where he did send Jesus once and for all to bring about restoration. Love moved that timeline along to this day when we can say that God with us, Emmanuel, is love. It might be better to say in light of John 3.16 that God with us displayed that love. But that love was costly. It cost him everything. It cost sending his only begotten to the cross to suffer his wrath on our behalf. God's love means that he eternally gives of himself to others. That's how Emmanuel with God with us displayed his love. Look at verse 16 again. This is the reality of God's love for us. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the heart of the Bible. 
I suppose if we were to lose all the other verses and chapters of the Bible and all we had left was John 3.16, that would probably be enough. We would read of a God who loved, a God who sent, and a God who redeemed, and we would find out there how we too could have eternal life. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, they have an important role to play in helping us understand the context of 16 and what follows after that. But going all the way back to John chapter 3, verse 1, we have that there is a conversation happening between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he wants to know about eternal life. He wants to know about everlasting life. Jesus tells him he must be born again. Nicodemus is an old man. How, How in the world, Jesus, can I be born again? How can I go back into my mother's womb? That doesn't make sense. Jesus continues on to explain it to him, eventually getting to verse 14, where he says that the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross. God's only begotten will be lifted up on the cross. And it is in the Son of God that if you will believe, you will not perish, Nicodemus, but you will have eternal life. John 3.16 is the greatest truth you can give anyone this Christmas. Give it away freely. It's not ours to keep. But this lifting up that John mentions or Jesus mentions in verse 14 and 15, it's that lifting up is planted in the love of God. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't because Rome hated Jesus. It was the plan of God that the Son of God would be lifted up because he loved the world. That love, the love of God, it's, it's stunning. It's miraculous. It's awe-inspiring. When you think about those words, for God loved the world, Wow, how big is the world? How large is the world? Over 7 billion people today. But it's not because the world is so large that this love is so amazing and astonishing and miraculous. It's because this world is so lost, so absolutely sinful. We, beloved, do not deserve this love that he offers us in Jesus Christ. And yet it is the mission of God in sending his son Jesus And it finds its climax at the cross where verse 14 and says, he will be lifted up. This is the the way that the Greek is written. It's written in such a way that it'll help us to understand the intensity with which God loved. This is why this version I'm reading in the CSB, it says God loved the world in this way. Kind of pulls that out a little bit better, I think, than some of the other translations, although the others are fine. He helped us, it helps us, to see that God loved it, loved the world this way. How is it that he loved? He sent his only son so that anyone who would believe in him would not perish. That's a costly love. It's the reality of his love. The one and only son, that phrase helps us to see the greatness of the sacrifice that is made on the cross for our sin. That he made this offer for grace and mercy to all who call upon the name of Jesus. The demonstration happened in that he gave. The proof of God's love is that he acted on it. How do you know someone loves you? Well, For some of you, words of affirmation, it's just enough for someone to say, I love you, and you, you buy it. That's all you need to hear. Some of you need other, you're loved in other ways. You might remember those things we call the five love languages. But God... 
God showed it this way. He put on a demonstration of his love by sending Jesus, his only son. This is how Paul told the Romans. He says, but God proved his love or proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, there was nothing about us that was beautiful. We were still in our sin, Paul wrote, and yet Christ died for us. That's how much God loves us. We were stained. We were stinky. We were sinners. And yet God proved his love by putting Christ upon the cross. He demonstrated his love by being Emmanuel, God with us. There in God with us, in Emmanuel, are his righteousness, his holiness, and the hatred of sin as seen through the punishment that Christ took for us on our behalf at the cross. Friend, don't ever doubt the love of God. Never doubt the love of God. Look at verse 17 and 18. Here we find the intent of God's love. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why did it have to happen this way? Did Emmanuel come for judgment? Did God send his son Jesus to, for, for judgment and condemnation? The answer is clearly no. Not that time. The Jews are looking for a, a leader of religion. They're looking for someone like King David to come along and gain power and seize power from the Romans and kindly escort them out of the promised land and reestablish the kingdom as it was in the time of David and Solomon. Liberate the people to make them a free nation once again. And yet, these verses show us the intent of the sending of Jesus, the intent of God's love, the reason he came. He came not to condemn, but to save. Verse 18 tells us that he didn't just come to condemn, he didn't have to condemn us. Whew, what a relief. Well, then you keep reading and it says, because we're condemned already. No, you always gotta finish the verse to get the whole context Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Friend, if you are here this morning or you're watching on Facebook and you have not trusted in the name of Christ, you stand condemned. And it will be that way until you come to faith in Christ because Christ paid for that. He wants you to have that freedom in his blood. He paid for that with his blood. He paid for your forgiveness. He wants you to stand freely before God with the church, but it'll only happen when you come to trust exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Listen, you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make, life in Christ or death in sin. That's the choice we face. That is the choice you are given. In the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I, I think it is the best Indiana Jones movie they've made. There's another one coming out. Why? I have no idea. They'll never do it better than the Last Crusade, but I really enjoyed that one. Sean Connery and, and Harrison Ford. Indiana's looking for the Holy Grail, father and son, on this tag team adventure. When he finally arrives to the site where the grail is located, he's got to go through a series uh, of tests to get to the specific room where the grail is located. 
He weathered death. He had the, the, the spinning uh, saws, sort of, you know, cut the guy's heads off. I always wanted to put those in my bedroom, keep my brother out. Ne- never could figure that one out. He had, he had to spell the name of Jehovah in Latin. He almost made a mistake because he forgot it didn't start with a J. Then he had to take a step of faith across a, a, a deep uh, precipice. And, and there, finally, he made it through to the inner room where he met the old guardian night and into the room on the countertop were an assortment of cups. And he was faced with the challenge of having to choose which one would belong to the carpenter named Jesus from Nazareth. Well, his enemies were close behind and they didn't have to pass the test because Indiana already did. And they come into the room and they see the room filled with gold cups. Any one of them could be the Holy Grail and that old guardian knight there, uh, and he, as he said, he, he said one more time, you must, in fact, his, his words were exactly, you must choose wisely because there's always a consequence tied to the choice. Well, they made their choice and they chose wrong. You see, the wrong choice led to death. The right choice led to life. Indiana, of course, chooses the correct grail, and the story is finished. Moses is constantly reminded and constantly reminds the people of God to choose wisely. Joshua, leading the same people after Moses' death, Joshua comes to a point in his leadership where he has to call out to the people, choose you this day whom you will serve. You always have a choice. It's been said the world can be divided into two, two groups, those who divide people into two groups and those who do not. The Bible clearly divides us into two groups. There are those who believe and are not condemned, and then there are those who do not believe and are condemned. Friend, while you still have breath, you have time to get out of that second group to live in the grace and mercy of God, to embrace it as you embrace and trust Jesus Christ. There's a difference. One group is a group of men or women, boys or girls, who take John 3, 16 and 17 and trust Jesus. And then there's a group and they have not believed. Could be because they haven't heard the gospel yet. Could be because they have heard it and don't believe it. They reject it. Listen, it's not going to work someday for you to stand before God and talk to him about all of your accomplishments. We can even look back over our own history and say, look at, look at all that we've done. We put a man on the moon. We're crying out loud. Man, that's awesome. We did this. We did that. I did this with my life. We did that with my life. But friend, you are drowning in the sea of your sin And there is absolutely no possible way for you to bring about your salvation. It's not going to happen. The only way is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is why God sent him. This is the intent behind his love, the unique Son, to save us. Let me tell you this morning as clearly as I can. 
that if you continue to reject Christ and the offer of grace by God, and that is the way you die, there is no funeral sermon that will get you in. There is no amount of prayers prayed by your family afterward that will get you in. You will spend an eternity in hell. And the Bible says that place is not a joke. It's not a curse word. It's a curse. It's a real place of eternal torment. Yet Matt Carter says that we can place our faith today. You can place your faith in Jesus Christ. We can place our faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sin and enjoy eternal life in our Father's love. Doesn't that sound better? I mean, doesn't that sound like a place where we want to be, a place to experience God's love? Or we can reject the truth and eternally suffer in hell as a result of our sin. I mean, I I don't know. The choice is pretty clear to me. But the difference between the two is believing on Jesus. What will you do with Jesus? Now, to believe on Jesus means that you acknowledge the claims of Jesus and that you give 100% allegiance and trust to him as the only hope of salvation from sin and death. If you will do that today, if you will trust Jesus today, you will have eternal life. Your sins will be forgiven. And you keep on believing until he takes you home. I want to invite you to take that step. Take the step out of condemnation and into life by trusting in Jesus Christ, God with us, because he came to save us from our sins. Look at verse 19. Here's the response. This is kind of where we we kind of pull off that Band-Aid and we see what it takes. We see that it takes trust, but there's just people that aren't going to do that. This is the judgment. That means this is, this is from the Lord. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished not by himself, but by God. That's the response. You either trust God or you, you live in darkness. You have a choice to respond to God's love. You do that every day. His mercies are new every morning, as Lamentations chapter 3 reminds us. We respond to those new mercies every day, whether we acknowledge it or, or not. I guess not acknowledging it, it's a choice that we're making or the way we respond. But you have two responses. You have two responses. You're going to face the consequences of your sin because you didn't trust in Jesus Christ or you're going to trust in Jesus Christ. Therefore, the salvation is going to be accomplished by God. Let me, let me try to illustrate this for you in closing this way. And now I'm not a prophet, <laughs> but you are going to get a gift card on Christmas Day. (laughs) We always get gift cards on Christmas Day. It is who we are now. In fact, people enjoy gift cards sometimes more than the surprise gift (laughs) that will get re-gifted five years down the road at some white elephant gift, you know. But did you know, there's a survey, somebody's got way too much time on their hands, surveyed, Approximately half of all gift cards 
that are given on Christmas are redeemed within two months. Okay, like my kid opened up a gift card. They're ready to go Christmas Day. They're not waiting around. Going to burn a hole in their pocket. Now, the rest of them are spent as time goes on. But within a year, they found that about 80% of those gift cards are spent. So at the end of a year, that means there's about 20% of gift cards unused. Okay? There are some other estimates by another group of people that have way too much time on their hands that said that about 3% of gift cards are never redeemed, okay? Now, those are the percentages. Here's the dollar sign. If you take 2019, what this study found, there were about $98.6 billion worth of gift cards purchased in 2019, okay? You take 3% of that, that means there's about 3%, excuse me, about $3 billion in unused gift cards in 2019 and 2020. So if you wanted to, I don't know why you would want to do this, but if you wanted to and you could collect them all, you could buy the Houston Texans for $3 billion. (laughs) Now, let's really get crazy. There are some other estimates that go even further back. Again, this is somebody that had, didn't have enough, he's way too much time on their hands. That if you go back and calculate all the way to 2005, you're looking at somewhere between 45 and $50 billion worth of unused gift cards. Spend your gift card. With that... You could come pretty close to buying the Cowboys, the Yankees, and the last three, the Knicks, Lakers, and Warriors. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but the Cowboys and Yankees, the two most prized franchises in the United States, you could buy them. Oh, that's a lot of money. You know what their excuses were? I didn't have time. Didn't find anything I wanted. Lost the card. Card expired. As I went through that list and reading that article, I thought, wow, these are some of the same excuses people give for not trusting in Christ. I don't have time to do the church thing. I don't have time for the religious stuff. I'm not finding anything there in the church that I want. There's nothing there for me. There's nothing in Jesus for me. Jesus says in verse 19 that the people love the darkness and they didn't want the light of Christ to expose us. Of course not. If that light exposed us, we would be totally and completely embarrassed by what's in our hearts. But friend, that's where the grace and mercy of God come in because when that light exposes our darkness and our sin, that's when his grace and his mercy is more. That light shining in is not to condemn. That light shining in is to convict, to save. When the light of Christ exposes our sin, it is in that moment that we have an opportunity to trust in the light of the world that is Jesus Christ, to trust in him, the great love of God firsthand to experience the forgiveness and the mercy 
and the grace of God. To then know that the God of the universe has lavished upon his creation such a great gift by coming to us in Emmanuel, by coming to us, God with us, and to suffer as we have suffered, yet even to a greater extent. To be, to be tempted as we are tempted in every way, yet he is without sin. To suffer at the cross, the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. This is a great love that nothing can ever match. Friend, you have been gifted a gift card of grace this morning. I want to encourage you to cash it in on Jesus. In verses 14 and 15, here's how it happens. Jesus pointed to a story about Moses when he lifted up a bronze serpent in the wilderness. You see, the people in Moses' day were complaining about God. Oh, imagine that. Yes, they complained about God even then. And they complained about his leader named Moses. God got tired of it. Part of that discipline that God would show his people in love is that he sent poisonous snakes amongst them. And so when that happened, Moses was seeing what was happening, that some of the people were dying when they got bit. And so he interceded. He cried out to the Lord, God, please stop this. And so God told Moses to make an image of a snake and hold it up on the pole. And that with anyone who was bitten would look at the snake on the pole, they would be healed. This is the story Jesus is referencing when he says, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. And this time, that pole is a cross. So that anyone who would look to the pole, look to the cross, look to the Christ, would not perish but have everlasting life. That born again new life comes because of this moment when Christ is on the cross. We call that the atonement when he paid for our sin. I want to encourage you, if you have not, to look to him. Look to him today. The scriptures say, turn to me and be saved. Turn to him and be saved. Turn to Emmanuel. Turn to God with us. For he displayed love for you at the cross. Look to him, believe, and so have everlasting life.